This is the Wealth Ability for CPAs show. Better clients, better practice, better life. Here's Tom Wheelwright. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show for CPAs, where we're always discovering how to build better clients, a better practice, and a better life. This is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of Wealth of the Wealth Ability Network, and I have with me a very good friend of mine, Doug Laudmill. So we are in a, we're in a fascinating time in history right now. Um, we're going to have major, we, we're seeing major law changes. We're seeing uh, people getting sued right and left that you wouldn't normally would get sued, like police officers, for example, uh, are in the news right now. And uh, it seems like that protecting our assets is going to be more important than ever. And so I brought, uh, I asked Doug, um, who's one of uh, my longtime friends and I, I think the best asset protection attorney in the business, um, to talk about. Um, just kind of how CPAs should be dealing with asset protection. We're not attorneys. What's our role and what's the attorney's role and, and basically what are some of the basics we need to do and then talk a little bit maybe even about some of the more, um, more complex things that we could do to really give us a, a little, our clients a little more safety and security than they might otherwise have. So Doug, welcome to the show and uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? All right. Well, uh, thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Um, my name is Douglas Lodmel. I'm the managing partner of Lodmel and Lodmel, and we are, if not the biggest, one of the leading asset protection law firms in the country. Um, I've been working with clients for 25 years, closely with CPAs. I, I do have a master's in taxation. All that means is that I understand you. It does not mean I know how to do what you do. Trust me, I, I, I don't even do my own taxes, um, but I do know the language and I do understand it. So um, yeah, and I'm thrilled to talk about this because this subject is, is a huge issue. I mean, it is becoming more and more uh, relevant, more important. And what's happening is the clients are coming to you because frankly, to me, you're in the most important role by far. The CPA role is the key. That's the quarterback because you, you see them every year. You're the one that gives them the, the good news or the bad news, the number. Um, they're consulting you. So if you can help them identify what they need, or at least when they should be talking to someone like me, that's the best role you can play. And so hopefully we can get to that and, and accomplish uh, getting that information to you here. You know, I like that. One of the things that, uh, Doug, I've always appreciated about you is that um, you, you're like us. You recognize that, um, you know, working with clients is a team effort. This is not right. something that, okay, it's the accountants have to control it or the attorneys control it or, you know, then and, and you've got a lot of different attorneys. You know, you guys are actually pretty good at referring to each other. CPAs, not so much. We tend to try to do it all ourselves. Yeah. And, um, um, but, but what I found is over the years, when I can work with an attorney, it makes life a lot easier because A, I don't have to know everything. And, um, uh, and B, I don't, I'm not never going to be accused of practicing law without a license. Right. Right. Yep. Well, it, it's definitely a team approach. And one thing that we've figured out, Tom, is how to be a team on this. So um, so great. Well, where do you want to start with well, all this? So, so let's talk about, you know, kind of what ass protection is and what okay. it isn't. Um, so, you know, there's people who say, well, I don't need to worry about ass protection because I've got insurance. And yeah. uh, then I have attorneys say, well, 
no matter what, you still need to ask protection, even with insurance and, or, or you, you don't really need insurance. I'm a big believer in insurance. I actually think uh, your insurance agent, your insurance company is actually your first line of defense mm-hmm. um, because somebody calls up, you know, if you have a client that's got um, real estate or they've got a business, the chances are they're going to get sued at some time during their lifetime. And the, the question is, okay, so how do I protect myself? The obvious answer is, of course, insurance. But there's, of course, a lot more, less obvious answers that are very important. We hear about corporations and LLCs. And if you would, uh, just kind of walk through, um, as, if we could, let's start with Ask Protection 101. And uh, kind of walk through that. And then we'll go to uh, your, uh, your expertise, which I call, you know, advanced asset protection. Right. Okay. So um, I, love, I love that we, we started with insurance. Insurance really is your first line of defense. And for your clients, they should be focusing on, on having good insurance. I can't tell you how many um, calls I've gotten in the last three years with car accidents from people who, who the claims are radically in excess of their insurance. I mean, radically. So um, uh, being underinsured is probably one of the bigger problems that I see clients have is they just, they, they don't level up the insurance when they're leveling up their wealth. Um, having an umbrella policy is very valuable. The misnomer on an umbrella policy is that somehow it's an umbrella, it covers everything. No, it's just an excess coverage policy. That's all it really is. So if you have auto insurance and home insurance and and uh, whatever insurance for your life and you get an umbrella, it's just going to increase the coverage of that existing insurance. Right. However, one, one of the keys there is to make sure that all of your assets are covered, right, by that umbrella policy. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite um, uh, uh, terms is an additional insured because right. LLCs can be an additional insured. Corporations can be an additional insured. And typically that doesn't cost extra to just add an additional insured on there. Right. And, and, and really understand what you are and are not covered for. So one of the calls I get all the time is, well, I had insurance. I never thought about this. And then I, I had this issue occur. It's not insured. It's, it's not one of the things. So the way insurance works is it picks out a particular liability and says, okay, we'll insure you for this to this amount. The way asset protection works is it, it's it's agnostic on the on the liability. It doesn't matter what liability. We're taking the assets themselves and moving to a safer place. So, from my perspective, insurance works hand in glove with asset protection, um, or vice versa. That asset protection is 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 when you really just want to make sure if it's not insured, if it's in excess of your insurance, if your insurance company ends up fighting you. I had one client call me and said, yeah, my insurance company told me straight out, if the claim is under $100,000, they are going to cover it. If it's over, they're going to fight me on the coverage, which I thought that doesn't even make sense. I mean, you know, but that's what insurance companies have figured out is that when claims are big, their first thing is they're going to see if they really have to cover this claim. So I have often witnessed clients fighting their own insurance company to cover a claim and then having to fight the claim underlying issue at the same time. Um, it can get very distracting. That's where asset protection comes in. It fills all the gaps. So, so let's start with, okay, so we, we've got insurance, we've got an umbrella policy, made sure our coverages are good. Yeah. Um, so s- that's first line of defense. Second line of defense, what I call asset protection 101. Where do you go there and what, what does that mean? So that one, we're going to look at the assets. So asset protection really is driven by the assets. So if you've got rental property, investment property, that would be put into an LLC. 
That's your that's a that's a first layer line of defense. It's going to do two things. It's going to protect that asset from an outside attacker because getting into an LLC is not nearly as easy as getting into a, a property that's sitting in your personal name. It's also going to wrap up that LLC at the risk that that property has. So so inside liability. In other words, if there's a fire on the property and somebody dies, now the LLC is going to provide that a, an insulator or a wrapper around it. I kind of like to think of it as a Ziploc bag where you're putting the potentially uh, rotten apple. And, and by having multiple Ziploc bags, we can segregate that potential risk from the different properties into the different buckets. And then from there, and, and LLCs can be used for real estate, they can be used for businesses, definitely things like airplanes and yachts and toys that you have that are risky. So a client might have no LLCs or we might have 15 LLCs, just depending on how complicated the client is. Um, we can also really consolidate if, if they're wholly owned assets, we can often make those LLCs single member. We're retaining the, the legal protection, but we're actually disregarding them for tax purposes, creating a smooth, easy transition for, for fewer tax returns which gets to the second tool, which is really the holding company. Right. So let's talk about the holding company because one of the, one of the things I get from different attorneys and different attorneys think about, think of this differently as you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, some attorneys say, well, I don't really, I want every um, let's say risky asset, take mm -hmm. a real estate or business, et cetera, in its own separate LLC line um, I don't want multiple assets under the same holding company. So describe the holding company, what it's used and how you think it ought to be used. So a holding company, I, I like to see the holding company as this is where for most people, it's one holding company. So for unless you're extremely complicated, in which case we will segregate. But for the average client that that has, you know, five or $10 million in assets, it's a single holding company with multiple LLCs underneath it. Now, how many LLCs you need, this is where you'll hear different opinions. Some people will say a different LLC for every single property, regardless of the equity or the value of the property. Um, I don't know that that's needed. I think a, a separate LLC for each basket of risk or tranche of value, however you wanna see it. So if you have something that's particularly risky, yeah, let's make sure that's in its own LLC. Um, if you've got five rental houses in Detroit and they're each worth $50,000, I wouldn't bother with five LLCs. I put all five of them into one LLC because we're not talking about that much equity. We, we, and again, first line of defense is insurance. So everybody, when they think of rental properties, they're always thinking about the tenants and the risk of that. But remember, that's 99% of the time going to be covered by insurance. So we're less worried about that than we are someone from the outside coming in. You get a judgment against you. And now they're looking at that LLC as just a, a bucket of value. And they're saying, hey, how can I collect my judgment against those assets? In that case, that outside liability, it doesn't matter if we have five LLCs or one LLC. It's going to protect exactly the same from an outside liability. Uh, that, that, that's a good point. Now, one thing that I would always distinguish is I, I typically have a holding company for businesses and a separate holding company for real estate because, right. of course, for real estate, I want my holding company uh, probably to be taxed as a partnership for uh, business, I probably want my holding company to be taxed as a corporation um, right. because of the the nature of the income and the income tax for those. Uh, but but outside of that, having only two holding companies seems to me to be fine. I mean, do, is is that your perspective? 
Yeah, most of the time. So, so you, right. When I'm talking about a holding company, I'm thinking about assets. When we talk about businesses, whole nother story, because now we have the tax implications of all of that. And, and oftentimes we're going to want a corporation up there at the top. Um, it's going to, uh, I mean, we have to deal with the client's underlying businesses. Are they medical professionals? Do we have restrictions on ownerships? All that stuff. Um, and oftentimes we'll have a management company that's playing that role of creating the S corp. So, so yes. So typically, you know, one holding company for the asset side of the picture, one for the businesses side of the picture, um, and then all rolling up into something more protective if, if, if the client needs it. Um, and, and then the other assets that we want to look at is the safe assets, you know, right. the cash, the securities, the stocks, the bonds, there's, there's, you can either create a separate LLC for those and put it under the holding company, or you can just put them directly in the holding company. So because they're safe, we don't have a problem having them in the holding company. We're not worried that they're going to infect anything. And because we've insulated all the risky assets in their own LLC, we don't have a worry mixing them. And this becomes more true, Tom, when we, when we use the asset protection trust, because we're not really relying on those entities for a catastrophic event, we have an exit. Right, and one of the things that I think that um, I see missed a lot in the tax planning from uh, accountants is that it is missing this whole idea of the benefit of the holding companies and how that makes transferring assets so much easier, oh um, especially when then you add in the, a level of trust, the, the, the yeah. trust, which I consider the advanced as protection. You talked about the as protection trust, um, but what we do know is, is that, so the LLC or limited partnership would be base, your basic level asset protection 101, um, along with a holding company, preferably in a state, I presume, um, like uh, Nevada, Wyoming, Delaware, et cetera, where they have strong asset protection laws. Um, and then on top of that, now we can start talking about trust because historically, and trust, of course, are the longest lasting entities of all entities. And they're even, uh, and I, I don't know how you even describe a trust um, to a client, Doug. Is it an entity? Is it a, is it yeah. a contract? It's, it's kind of this uh, mishmash of things. But what we do know is, is that if it's done right, it's extraordinary in how it works. So when, uh, if you would just kind of touch on the different types of trusts and, and then when you might use what type of trust for, from an asset protection standpoint. Yeah, so um, you're right with how do you describe a trust? They are like, um, they're like a magic Play-Doh that you can shape into anything you want. Um, the trust is the best legal instrument I've ever used. They are so flexible. They, they can do almost anything and uh, they can morph. They don't have to stay one thing. So because uh, somebody's had a, like a standard revocable living trust in their planning, I've been able to morph that into some, uh, a really protective structure um, without dealing with funding issues. So I just love trusts in general and, and having a trust at the top is incredibly powerful. So the types of trust, the standard one is a revocable living trust. This is what everybody knows about. This is an estate planning trust. Um, it was pretty revolutionary in the 60s, the concept of having, instead of a will, putting your assets in trust, trusts don't die, so they don't have to go through probate. It kind of changed the landscape of, of estate planning, certainly in the West. Um, in the East, they're still hanging on to wills. But in the West, they, no one uses a will. They all use revocable living trusts. 
Yeah, I, I, I love the revocable living trust for, for a couple of reasons. One, it's revocable. Right. <laughs> Pretty much you can do whatever you want with it, right? You can change it. You know, it can morph. It, you, you can add assets to it. You can take assets out of it. I mean, I, I, as far as um, estate planning 101, I would say that's the revocable living trust. Yeah. Yes, we avoid probate, of course, which we want to do. But I actually think the best thing about the, the living trust is when, the, when somebody dies, it makes it so much easier for the, the, the heirs um, to, to take Deal with everything. Yeah. Keep going, right? Yeah. They don't actually have to do anything. Um, of course, you always have to make sure those trusts are funded, which yeah. is the big mistake that people make is they don't fund them. They don't actually transfer the ownership right. of the LLCs and of the assets into the trust, which is, which is, which is really critical because um, trust is meaningless without that transfer of ownership. But once you transfer that ownership in the trust, as I understand trust, uh, a living trust, now the trust is the owner. So now, um, you know, somebody dies, the, 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 the person who is the kind of the living beneficiary of the trust, he doesn't, they don't own the asset. So when they die, there's, there's no change in title or anything like that, which of course is what probate is, is the change in title from a decedent to, a, to their heirs, but it's already in trust. So there's literally nothing that has to be done. I had an experience a number of years ago, Doug, I mean, this like 20 years ago, and one of my clients passed away and his wife came to me and she goes, what do I do? I said, well, let's talk to your attorney right. and let's, uh, you know, make sure everything's, things good. So we sat down with the attorney for literally 15 minutes and yeah. attorney goes, look, your husband set everything up in a, in a living trust. It's all done. All of the assets were titled into the trust. He says there's absolutely nothing that you need to do. Right. So to me, you know, I'll hear all our attorneys say, well, you don't really need probate anymore. I'm going, but why wouldn't you take advantage of something that A, it's very inexpensive to set up and mm -hmm. B, it just makes life so much easier when somebody passes away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, to me, it's a standard. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use anything else from an estate planning perspective. So from there we take, okay, well, what other kind of trusts are there? Well, now we get into the higher level trusts. Um, and asset protection trusts have really become a, a, a real thing. So these were really created in the 80s. And there's three ways to do an asset protection trust. And what an asset protection trust is, Tom, is it's a self-settled spendthrift trust. So a revocable living trust is a self-settled trust that's revocable. An asset protection trust is a self-settled trust that is irrevocable and adds spendthrift provisions. So what spendthrift provisions are, are the provisions which say, you know, if this, then that. If you have a creditor, then that you can't get a distribution if the creditor would reach the distribution. So it allows you to protect the assets from the creditors. That's the whole point of an asset protection trust, protect the assets from a creditor. There was never any problem doing this for a child or a grandchild. You could always set up your, your assets give them to this trust and put spendthrift provisions in there for other people. That was from 200 years ago, common law, English common law, trust been around forever. You couldn't do it for yourself though. That, that seemed a little bit like, wait a second, I'm gonna put my own money in a trust and then I'm gonna say, I can't get it back if I have a creditor. That seems a little wanky. I'm not sure we're gonna go for that. Well, we went for it and we went for it statutorily. In other words, instead of saying, yeah, common law, we're gonna, we're gonna shoehorn this concept in, 
the Cook Islands just passed the statute and said, you can absolutely do it. Here's the rules around it. No, by the way, we're going to make it impossible to break. You have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. You, you can't use a contingent fee attorney. You, there's a short statute of limitations. So this was the birth of the Asset Protection Trust. And I have to tell you, in, in, in the, in the uh, 80s and early 90s, when, when these were still just infant trusts and the legal community was, was commenting on them, there was a fair amount of commenting that these are not going to fly. We're not going to have these. Some Somebody, the government is going to come in and say these are against public policy. We can't do this. You cannot set up a trust for yourself and protect your own assets from your creditors. Well, what happened is in 1989, Alaska adopted, basically copied the Cook Island statute as well as they could and passed a domestic asset protection trust statute. And today, as you and I talk, we have 19 US states that have a DAPT statute. So as a matter of public policy, it has not been um, uh, uh, dissolved. It has been endorsed by almost half the states. So the concept of protecting your assets is okay. You can do it. It's not, you're not doing anything unethical. Um, You're not doing anything illegal. And I get a lot of clients, the first thing they say is, I don't want to do anything illegal. I don't want anything to do wrong, but I, I want to know, can I protect my assets? The answer is yes, you can, as long as we follow a few rules. A couple of questions for you, Doug. So, yeah. so first question is, um, the, uh, I hear a lot of attorneys say, yeah, the, the domestic asset protection trusts haven't really been uh, tried uh, that much. And it's not like a foreign asset protection trust where, um, because you've got, you know, you let's say you've got a state um, that doesn't have an asset protection trust and you use an asset protection trust in a state that does have the asset protection trust, right. um, but somebody sues you in the other state, are they really going to say, no, you, you can't get, get at the assets? So th- that's, I think that's the number one issue that I hear people come up with when they're talking about domestic asset protection trust. Yeah. And, and so it's absolutely correct. Um, I bring up domestic asset protection trusts because they they prove the concept that we're okay with it in this country. I don't actually use them because I don't think they have held up. We do have a fair amount of case law and every single one of those cases is bad for domestic asset protection mm-hmm. trusts. They all have failed. Well, until first- we got 50, we're really in trouble. Well, yeah, it, until we have 50 states, but even in, in cases where the two states both have DAPT laws, it has still failed there. Remember, we have federal laws that supersede state law. So federal bankruptcy court, federal court, um, and, and that just means that, you know, you're, you're, you're not, um, it's not going to work. You have the Article 4, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution, which says that the states must grant full faith and credit to the laws and right. judicial proceedings of the other state. So Alaska could say, hey, we're going to be a DEP jurisdiction. Um, but when somebody from Texas comes with a judgment to Alaska, Alaska has to recognize it and they have to uh, domesticate it and they have to deal with it. So um, I'm not saying DAPTs, domestic asset protection trusts are not without value. They can be useful if you live in the state where the DAPT statue is. If your goal is fairly limited in what you're trying to accomplish, it could be considered. But um, I don't know a lot of attorneys that use them right now. That makes sense. So yeah. the, the other thing to consider, of course, when we talk about trusts, of course, we, from a tax standpoint, we, we think about trusts from a tax standpoint. So we think right. grantor trusts, 
we're thinking about simple trusts or complex trusts. So um, talk about, okay, so talk about the type of asset protection trust you like to use, because mm -hmm. I know you're very specific on it, and, and tell us what, so from a tax standpoint, what kind of a trust is it? Right. So, so a lot of um, a, a lot of attorneys and even some CPAs are unfamiliar with the concept of an irrevocable grant or trust, but that's exactly what we use when, with an asset protection trust. Um, I mean, ninety nine percent of the trusts that I create are grant or trusts, meaning disregarded for tax purposes. So you are completely allowed to have a, a grant or trust that is irrevocable that um, you are your own beneficiaries of. Of course, it's includable in your state. It's a grant or trust. Um, it can be domestic. It can be foreign. It can be a foreign grant or trust, or it can be a hybrid. Um, and we can talk about the hybrid, but I, the, the trust I like to use the most is a hybrid trust. In other words, it's a foreign trust from the standpoint of asset protection. It's grant or but from an IRS perspective, it's considered domestic for tax purposes. So it does not have to file the form 3520 and 3520A. Um, it's very simple to manage. Because it's grantor, it's disregarded for tax purposes. Um, and and it, it, it provides no extra complication from your perspective. It's just as if the clients owned it directly. So, so as I understand it, and, and we'll, we'll get to the end here because I don't want to go, go, go too far into your time, Doug. But as I understand it, though, yes, it's domestic for now. At some point, it could become a foreign trust, right? At, at yeah. the point where we're worried about is somebody going to come attack us? Is somebody, yeah. you know, we'd have, do we have a major lawsuit coming? At that point, as I understand it, then it does become a foreign asset protection trust and no longer domestic trust. Is, am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so um, what we do is, is is registered offshore in a foreign jurisdiction. So it meets the requirements from that jurisdiction as a as a foreign trust. But the U.S. doesn't define a foreign trust as is it registered someone else somewhere else. The U.S. defines a foreign trust under 7701A30E. Since we're talking to CPAs, you guys can look that up. You'll know exactly what, what how to do it. Um, there's a two-part test that determines whether a trust is considered domestic or foreign. It's called the control test and the court test. So as long as the control, meaning the trustee of the trust, is vested in a U.S. person, then you meet the control test. And as long as the jurisdiction that has primary supervision over the trust is also a U.S. jurisdiction, then you meet the control test. So what we do, and this kind of trust I call a bridge trust, what we do with the bridge trust is that we register it offshore but then we make the client the trustee of the trust. This solves the client's biggest problem, which is I don't want to lose control of my assets. As we all know, clients hate that. And then we, we uh, name a U.S. jurisdiction to have primary supervision and control over the trust. So this meets the two-part test under 7701, and, and it's a domestic disregarded grantor trust. Then if we have a problem, the protector who's named in the trust and is typically the attorney, typically me, will declare an event of duress. That causes the offshore successor trustee to become a full trustee. And the minute they remove the client as the trustee, we fail the control test and it becomes a foreign trust at that point. So it's really living as both a foreign trust and a domestic trust, Tom. And then we fail and it, it just drops the domestic and it stays a foreign trust. And of course, one of the, the driving principles when we do tax planning at WealthAbility is we want flexibility. Right. And that's one thing I like about this, uh, this, uh, this hybrid situation here, where we've got the flexibility of treating as just a normal grantor trust, 
it's almost like a living trust at that yeah, point. Really from and a then, tax perspective. And then, and then it becomes if we need it to be, and that in the rare situation, that's why right. we have set it up is for that rare situation. Then that rare situation, then it becomes a basically a foreign asset protection trust and it's fully foreign. So rather, we don't have time to get into all the details here. So Doug, um, somebody wants to know more about the foreign asset protection trust, where can they reach you? So um, email me, my, just my name, Doug at lodmel.com. I have a, what I call a masterclass presentation. It's about an hour plus. It really goes over it in detail. It, it was done as a CLE. Um, I get incredible feedback from it. Attorneys love it. Uh, CPAs love it because it goes into all the, the details. And then from there, I'm happy to talk to anybody in the WealthAbility Network for as long as you want to help you understand this because it's just so valuable when a client really wants to, to, to protect assets um, or has assets. Believe me, when you bring up asset protection, it's rarely going to be, oh, no, I don't need that. It's going to be, yeah, tell me more. So um, it's fantastic. So email me directly and I'll send you the link to that presentation. You can go to my website, lodmel.com, or you can just call if you, if you, you want to go straight for the conversation. Um, just call my office at 602-230-2014 and they'll put you on my calendar. And uh, if you tell them your wealth ability, you're a priority, you go to the top of the list. I appreciate that, Doug. Um, I like to call this the sleep at night trust. Yeah. Because that's really the idea behind it, right? Is that you, your yeah. client's allowed to sleep at night. They're, they've got some risky assets, a risky business, uh, or they just feel like, boy, just the way the the legal climate is right now, that yeah. it's just high risk to be in business, period, um, or to be a, an investor, period. So I'm a, I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer in trust. I'm a big believer in, in going and really getting a better team. And that's why I love Doug. And he's, uh, I'm going to promote you here, Doug, because <laughs> Doug has a, a full network of attorneys. He, it's not just Doug and his firm, but he's got a network of attorneys. And I find Doug to be actually an, an amazing resource. And uh, in fact, I was just talking to one of your referrals today that I uh, you oh, yeah. me for a, a client and they just did a terrific job on estate planning. Oh, good. So, um, just, a, just a terrific network. Uh, uh, Doug's got a network very similar uh, from an attorney side, legal side to the WealthAbility Network from an accountant side. So uh, we do yeah. a lot of work together. So I will uh, be, you know, to be completely upfront, I'm, I'm not impartial here. Uh, <laughs> Doug, Doug's, Doug's one of those few attorneys I call the can-do attorneys as opposed to the can't-do attorneys, which right, right. I find are, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that, where Doug uh, kind of follows our philosophy, which is, uh, let's figure out how to do what you want to do. So yeah. um, with, with that, Doug, any final words? Uh, no, I mean, look, if you're, if they're listening to you, they're already cutting edge. I deal with, I deal with CPAs all over the country and, and it, just like attorneys or financial plans or anything else, there's, there's the ones that are really proactive. They're, they're, um, helping the client find solutions to problems. And then there's everybody else. And, and if you're listening to this, I know which one you are. And those are the people I love to work with. So I'm thrilled to be part of this and absolutely invite you to call me or email me if you need any help at all. Awesome. Thank you so much, Doug. And just remember when, when we're, when we're thinking about the whole, the holistic view of what our clients do. So we're not just looking at the ta income tax side or the estate tax side or the financial side, but we're looking at the legal side, asset protection side, all of that. What happens is 
our clients actually become better clients because they're relying on us more and they're more involved in the day. We're more involved in their day-to-day transactions, make, makes it much easier to do tax planning, much easier uh, to give uh, quality advice. We end up with better clients, which of course creates a better practice and yeah. always a better life. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Wealth Ability for CPA show. Better clients, better practice, better life. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>